Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 19th year here on the air at WQLN Public Media, WQLN NPR. Today, two very special guests. We're going to talk about an organization. Let's let's ask our guests to sign in. Susan Snellick, you're on one line here. Thank you for being here. You're celebrating a one-year anniversary, I believe, as president of the Northern Pennsylvania Regional College. Am I right? Yes, you are right. Good morning. Good m- Thank you so much for having us. Oh, this is great. And uh, we have a second special guest. Thank you very much, Melinda Saunders. And let's see, you're the Dean of Curriculum and Instruction at NPRC since March of 2018 and Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs since July of last year, just a little over a year ago. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. First of all, I think what would be good, since this program goes far afield, could we describe the organization, how it started, what is the mission and purpose and the objective? Give us some bio, some history on the organization itself. Sure. Um, I'll, this is Susie. I'll start off um, and let you know that uh, Northern Pennsylvania Regional College is a two-year open enrollment regional college that operates in nine counties across Northern Pennsylvania. And those counties include McKean, Erie, Warren, Venango, Forest, Potter, Elk, Crawford, and Cameron. That's quite a, a geographic area. Uh, it sure. Yeah. How, how do you cover that? Uh, how how does this work logistically? Meaning, do you travel there to maintain different organizational aspects of the so organization? I'll jump in and take that question. So um, we have over twenty instructional locations. We partner with higher education councils. We partner with libraries. We partner with. Uh, local um, area school districts to provide um, instructional locations that are within about a 20-minute drive for all of those that we serve. We offer both academic coursework and workforce development courses, and we have personnel who are scattered throughout the region so that our students have a personal touch. What do you offer to these students? I'll open that up to either of you. Let's talk about the degrees and certifications, et cetera, that the Northwest Pennsylvania Regional College offers. So, Susie, I'll hop in with the academic side and then hand off to you for workforce development. So, in the area of academics, we offer five associate degrees, an associate degree in business administration, liberal studies, social sciences, criminal justice, and early childhood education. And we offer a 30-credit hour general education certificate. And those um, degrees and that certificate, they're available to students anywhere throughout the region, regardless of where their instructional location might be located. That's fabulous. Can we go into the past for a second? How did this entire organization come about? Well, I can jump in on that one. Um, So there actually was um, a group of founders who um, were very much dedicated to our region and wanting the same opportunity for rural Pennsylvania as was found throughout um, the more urban areas in Pennsylvania via uh, community college offerings. And so those folks worked long and hard for many, many years um, on building the concept and finding champions across the region as well as champions in our legislature. And uh, we were fortunate to become legislated and become part of um, 
the public school code and we are part of the state budget and we have support from across the entire region um, for the college. So it's been many, many years in the making. Um, and it was really based on some really hardworking, dedicated folks who believed in, in what we did and, and wanted the same, like I said, the same opportunities for rural Pennsylvania as in other areas across the state. Sounds like an essential program. How are students managed? What's the structure? For someone who's never seen this before, do they enroll online? Is there a meeting where you meet with students? How does this work logistically, if I could ask? So we have, we employ a group of professionals known that we call student engagement specialists. And those student engagement specialists act as advisors for our students. And they follow students through their entire educational journey from the moment that they begin the application for admission until the moment beyond their graduation when they follow up with them to see how they're doing out in the world and what we can still do to help them along their career path. We also have a group of individuals, community engagement specialists, and these folks are out in the field and they attend tons of high school events and festivals and are out there speaking in speaking engagements to community organizations and civic organizations. So officially, what was the opening date? Our first term of independence was spring of 2020, so January. Before that, we had a long-running partnership with Gannon University, and under their accrediting envelope. We were offering the same five degrees that I described before. And then over on our workforce development side, we were able to have independent offerings throughout. Since um, I believe 2014, Susie, does that sound accurate? Yes, that's when the board was formed um, for the college. With a partner like Gannon, you didn't come to the table trying to reinvent the wheel. You had a partner. You tested out quite a few programs, and that's where you are today. It sounds like it's a true benefit to the community. What are your graduation rates? Are you at that point yet? Or what is the status of, say, students relative to employment as of today? Well, in our first two full academic years of independence, we awarded 17 associate degrees and 26 of our 30 credit hour gen ed certificates. And over 80% of MPRC students are employed, even prior to graduation. Lots of students come to us and they're looking to upskill in their current professions, or they're looking for transitional skills to new professions. That's fantastic. So it does have economic impact. It does affect a student who may be working somewhere already. Do students come from different scholastic organizations, or are they starting with you from scratch? Yes, many of our students are first-generation. In fact, over half of the students are first-generation students, and over half come to us with some college credits that they're transferring in. Hmm. So we have a very generous uh, transfer policy. We evaluate students' transcripts to look for opportunities for equivalencies within our own curriculum. So this agreement is a great agreement because not only does it provide an opportunity for students to come to us, it also provides an opportunity for them to transfer their credits and then continue on their pathway to a bachelor's degree. So structurally, how many professors or teachers are interacting with, say, each student? So we have a 
cadre of five full-time faculty, but we also have anywhere from 20 to 25 part-time faculty who are with us on a regular basis. And those uh, part-time faculty are definitely very much experts in their field and well-credentialed. And they have the added advantage of working in their disciplines out there in industry, providing our students with lots of opportunity for real-life situations to apply their um, academic theory. So we've been very fortunate to have professionals throughout the, the footprint come to work with us. It sounds like a student can easily find help should they need it. Is there any structures involved in this? I'm, I'm guessing there's offices. Paint a picture, if you would, of what this looks like on a physical basis. So from a physical basis, you might be a student who's enrolled in, let's say, um, a writing one course. You could be a student who attends your classes at um, Potter Community Education Council. And while you're attending at that education council, you would see your professor, you might see one of your instructors uh, on camera with a few peers in the room with you and some peers at other locations peppered throughout the region. And then after class, you might stop by to see a student engagement specialist. That person that I was talking about who's your advisor is kind of acts like a hotel concierge to connect you to all the other services at NPRC. So for example, if you have a a question about financial aid or institutional aid. That individual would then connect you with our director of financial aid. Or you might have a question about a transfer course and be transferred over to an academic director. And those connections are frequently made by video calls, audio calls, or in-person appointments where we come to the student. With that said, the courses are mostly video conferencing, if not all of them. Well, since since we have teachers spread throughout the region, mm -hmm. it's quite frequent that you might that you would have one. Let's say you're enrolled in five courses. You might have one of the teachers who is live in person with you. Mm -hmm. In many of your classes, you'd have peers sitting at a table with you. Mm -hmm. And then up to eight instructional locations would be connected together so that you have the video conferencing opportunity, but you also have the opportunity to engage with people within the room with you. Well, that's great. So it's not only a group live, but group online, and the interconnectivity of the technology allows for larger classrooms. Do I have that picture correct? Yes, yes, you do. Yeah, it allows more students to be served across a rural geography so that you can aggregate the numbers. And like Mindy said, you could have you know, maybe two or three students in one location, two or three sitting in another, you know, in a couple, you know, in, in another space. And then you add those numbers up to, to come up with a class of maybe 12 to 20 or whatever. Um, but it's, it's a great model for sustainability across a rural region. Yeah. And with the COVID epidemic hopefully totally subsided and not starting up again. This has a huge advantage, or maybe uh, it gave you a good advantage in the last couple of years? We transitioned easily to remote, but we are back to in-classroom because we we found from our students that they, they it's a much better learning experience when they're in a classroom with other students. So, you know, we're not, they're not sitting at home by themselves trying to focus on their, you know, coursework. Um, and being distracted by everything that we know we get distracted by when we're at home. Um, yes, but rather, yes, they're that. sitting at, you know, in a classroom, they're focused on the instructor, and then they have other students to support them. 
Well, that's great because, uh, especially in this day and age, student interactivity is critical. And going back to, well, we won't say how far back when I was in college, but uh, that that connectivity, uh, that lasts 20, 30, 40 years many times. So there's a huge value to students being able to interact with each other, even socially, subsequent to participating in school. And forgive me for calling it school. As professionals, what would be your nomenclature? College students would be the correct term, I'm guessing? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and, and we serve a, a wide variety of students. So when you say school, it, it's definitely something that's very common. We serve students from 16-year-olds who are dual enrollment students who are coming to us for a first college experience all the way through students in their 50s and beyond who might be looking to change careers. That's phenomenal. So the mature student should not be afraid of this organization, so to speak. Absolutely not. Our median student is a, a female student somewhere in her mid-20s, and likely she has at least a part-time job. And many of our students are also balancing families. And they our students typically take about nine credit hours, about three-quarters of full-time, each of their academic terms of enrollment. And in workforce development, we have many opportunities for students. I'm so glad you brought those two topics up. You have to work. You have a family, a couple of kids at home. It's not easy to accelerate your academic learning. So how do you work that out with your schedule, your course schedule? So we uh, do something that's kind of uh, unique for many colleges. We incorporate our first-year writing and math courses, those incorporate something that we call a support course mm -hmm. so that rather than having pre-college level math or pre-college level English before you begin your college level studies, we pair those pre-college level experiences right alongside the four credit classes that uh, earn you credits toward degree so that our students can save time and save money as they work toward their degrees. And we've experienced a lot of success. Um, in the last couple of years, we have about an 85% success rate in uh, math and right around an 80% success rate in English for those first freshman-level courses. So it's been a really great experience for our students to get the just-in-time help that they need as they begin their college careers. Well, I always save the most difficult question for about the middle of the broadcast. Where, <laughs> where does the money come from? That's what folks writing you letters, they may be calling you. How is this all funded? How did this all come about financially? So I can jump in, um, and Mindy can feel free to, to fill in the blanks, but um, we're fortunate at NPRC that we're able to offer institutional aid um, according to students' financial needs. Um, so students could be awarded a waiver up to 100% of tuition, and they could also receive a textbook, a textbook voucher um, up to $500. Hmm. Um, so there's definitely opportunities um, to assist them with their you know, financial costs. More than half of NPRC students are awarded this institutional aid. And because we recognize what's going on in the world as far as our economic times, our Board of Trustees discontinued charging fees for academic courses for the next two academic years. And because of the public funding that we receive, we are able to keep our tuition really low for our students and uh, at $185 per credit hour for those who are mm -hmm. in our service region. It's a very affordable opportunity for our students. 
And uh, the agreement with the Commonwealth University has even provided our students with an opportunity to, trans to transfer to any of their three campuses and be awarded an annual scholarship of up to $5,000. It's renewable for up to three years. So those opportunities are really invaluable to our students. Is there a, a business plan for this, or is this set up to be a perfectly good service organization as it is? And that's a touchy question, but you can answer it any way you like. Um, I guess I would say that you know we are we are established um, as a public nonprofit that is here to serve our communities um, in the best way possible and in a way that meets their needs and meets them where they're at. Um, you know, we focus on our students and meeting them along their career pathway and whatever they need, um, whether it's workforce development programming or academic courses, we'll provide that to them so that they get what they need along their way. And then as far as our employers are concerned, um, you know, we stay in touch with our employers to make sure that all of our coursework that we offer is meeting their needs as well and that our curriculum is up to date so that when students leave here, they're best prepared with the skills that they need for the workforce. So not only does it help the student, but ultimately it helps the employer and then it helps our communities stay vibrant um, and successful. And, and really, you know, that's our main goal to provide the service and meet the need. With that, you have five geographical locations? We have more than 20 instructional oh. locations because oh, that ability you. to partner with other organizations has been really key. Rather than picturing NPRC as a traditional campus-based model, um, we don't offer residence halls, we don't offer sports programs, but instead we offer a really high-quality education embedded within the student's community. So that ability to get courses nearby uh, allows our students that flexibility that they need to be able to balance jobs and families as they pursue their educational opportunities. I'm going to back up a half a second. It's always interesting to me. How many folks are on your board? How do they help? And I'm sure you're going to say great things about them because they probably contribute quite a bit. But is this an active board, a participatory board? Is it a governance board? How does your board help your organization? Sure. So our board um, consists of up to 15 representatives from across the nine county region. And when we're looking for new board members, we're looking for folks who represent maybe a diverse industry. Um, you know, we make sure that we have representation from all of our nine counties um, and, and that we have just sort of a mix of diverse folks. Um, and we're so fortunate because you're right, I am going to say good things. Um, we have a truly dedicated board who is, you know, willing to um, support us and, and really put the time and energy into, um, you know, the board meetings, the committee meetings, everything that's required of a board. Um, they're there supporting us every step of the way. And um, it's an interesting question because our board is definitely a governance board and they're really good at strategic visioning. Um, but early on when we first started, they, you know, they helped build the college um, because we had, we had nothing. We, had, we didn't have employees, we didn't have a location, we didn't have an administrative building. Um, so they were more hands-on in the beginning and really 
um, built that solid relationship, that solid, you know, trust in the organization and belief in our mission. And we're very fortunate to have a, a strong board that we do. I notice you do criminal justice, some early childhood education, the five areas of, of your expertise, and business administration. How have businesses been reacting to the Northern Pennsylvania Regional College? They have been extremely supportive of, of the college. Um, we have, for example, a business um, in Warren County who provides scholarships to their employees and family members to help them move along um, their career pathway. And an example is one of their employees um, went through our associate degree program in business. And, you know, he's well on his way within the management track of, of moving up in the company. And, you know, they definitely see value in our offerings and look at it as an opportunity to retain a workforce. It's tough nowadays uh, with a very tight labor market. Mm -hmm. And it, Businesses are trying to be creative in attracting and retaining um, their workforce. And so investing in your employees is a great way to retain them. So I think, you know, for any business that if you show through education and training an investment in them, um, you're hopefully going to have them for, for more of the long term than if you hadn't. Since you're a 501c3, I'm going to assume that you do some fundraising activities to help support your organization. We do um, to a certain degree. We haven't. That's that's a part of the institution that we're working on. Um, we're working hard on, but we definitely have quite a few folks who have donated to the college and specifically donated scholarship monies to the college for our students. Um, we are looking at opportunities to expand upon that and build. Um, as you mentioned, to build actual activities and fundraising events. Um, so more to come on that in the future. But, um, you know, definitely it's a great opportunity for our students um, when folks donate to the college. It's still, in fact, yeah, go over ahead. 90, over 90% of those who work for the college actually give back to the college's scholarship fund. Oh, that's fantastic. So folks, in good faith, give back to something that has helped them. That's a fabulous business model. That's excellent. I'm still amazed. Cameron, Crawford, Elk, Erie, Forrest, McCain, Potter, Venango, Warren. That's a lot of geography. Where is your main office? Sure. Our main office is in Warren. Mm -hmm. Pretty much in the center of the nine-county region. Perfect. And it's certainly a good place to be. As we get to the end of this discussion here, and I did ask it in one way prior, but where do you see the organization? What direction do you see it moving in the next, say, one to two to five years? Yes. Yeah, so we are, we do have a strategic plan that um, we live by each and every day. Um, and we have such a dedicated team at NPRC. We're so fortunate that folks are so dedicated to our students and to our um, to our college. And we are looking at obviously increasing enrollments. So we want more people in our communities to know about us, to understand how to enroll and participate in workforce development or academics um, because we are in their communities. So we make it very accessible for students to participate. Um, we're expanding our offerings. Um, in the past couple of years, we've offered our courses in the evening hours after 
school lets out at a little after three up until nine o'clock at night. Um, and that really helps folks who work part time. Uh, but this fall, we're offering courses in the morning hours as a pilot program to expand our offerings. Uh, we're constantly evaluating the landscape to see where we might need more associate degree programs. And so we keep a pulse of the need. Um, obviously, we want to make sure that we're offering degrees in areas where there is a need in the workforce. Um, so we're constantly evaluating that in academics and, of course, in workforce development as well, um, looking at what the needs are for our employers so that we're offering courses, again, that they're needed um, so we're looking at growing, we're looking at expanding, um, we're looking at potentially expanding our region into other counties that are underserved and not represented by a community college or similar institution. Um, so that's definitely something that we talk about, um, you know, pretty regularly, where, where else are we needed um, so that we can expand our services and, and continue to serve the, the communities across Pennsylvania. It's a heck of a project, and it sounds like you folks are doing a great job. I listen to people out in the community. They seem to agree with that comment I just made. We're talking with Susan Snellick. Susan, just passed your one-year anniversary, right, as president of the Northern Pennsylvania Regional College. I guess it's been an interesting and challenging year, I'm sure. It's been an exciting year, yes. Oh, you sound like you have a lot of energy to be able to accomplish the task. And Melinda <laughs> Saunders, thank you for being here, Dean of Curriculum and Instruction at the MPRC, and that's since 2018, and Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs. I'm sure it's been more than a challenge, but I think there are many accolades I have heard in the community to the work that you've accomplished. Let's just say the entire region of all the multiple communities that you, you work in. It, it's a fabulous opportunity to enable economic development and educational development in our community. So I think there's some thanks that should be uh, offered here. In the last minute or so, are there any thoughts that I may have missed that you feel the audience should know about? I think the, the one thing that I would like to add is for people who are interested in finding out more about NPRC, I would encourage them to go to our website, and that is discovernprc.org. And as soon as you reach out through our website, a community engagement specialist will follow up and be in touch and help help you along your education pathway and journey. So, Well, between the phone number and also the website, I can't believe someone would at least not get a good start on their new career in, uh, in the right. area you serve. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good project. As folks listen to this, it's important education be extended to every corner of our communities. And we thank Absolutely. you for and we thank you for your hard work. We appreciate your energy and we appreciate the fact that you took some time to join us for an interview here on WQLN. Thank you both very, very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Welcome to We Question and Learn. We're celebrating our 19th year on the air here at WQLN NPR in Erie, Pennsylvania, serving Northwest Pennsylvania and parts around the world on our podcasts. We are on about nine podcast venues currently for WQLN's We Question and Learn. As I promised in a program earlier, we were speaking with Dan Benser and Paul Wojtek, who's the CEO slash CFO 
at the Erie Waterworks, and we had covered quite a few topics, but as we got to the end of the program, it seemed like, wow, there's a couple of more things that are not only interesting to our community, but I think interesting from a technological point of view. So, Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. You turn on the spigot and you expect it to be there. It's not that simple. Well, you know, you know, um, it, it is. You know, we, we, as I said, I think in the previous show that if people turn on their spigot and it comes out and they take their water for granted, that means the Erie Waterworks is doing its job. And I, I, I you know, really mean that. Uh, we take that very seriously. That that's that kind of um, reliability and that kind of uh, confidence that people might have in their public water supply. That's what we strive to accomplish. And uh, is people take their water for granted, it's a job well done as far as we're concerned. It's an excellent accolade for you and your whole team. <laughs> Let's you. just talk about what that entails, the budget. Your budget now is about well over $30 million, right? Yes. And what really threw me off, 24 yeah. million gallons of water per day. I would have thought that's per month. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine how that works. And if we could take a couple of seconds, how does it get to the plant? And how does it get from the plant to everywhere else? And subsequently, how does it get back? Well, as you, as you pointed out, it, it's, you might think it's 24 million gallons a month, but it's per day. I yeah. think it might take me more than a few seconds to describe <laughs> that process. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, but but quite frankly, it is it is a pretty um, pretty intense process. You know, of course, we use Lake Erie as our source water. Uh, we have intakes out in the lake. We have two intakes. Uh, one is about a mile and a half out into the waters, and the other one's about a mile one point seven miles out into the open waters. Uh, at the you know at the at the um, base of the lake. Uh, water drains in just by gravity, comes in by gravity into our two treatment plants. Mm. One is located here on the bayfront, the chestnut plant. That was the original plant uh, built in the early 1900s. Uh, it, we celebrated its 100th birthday uh, in uh, 2010. It was 100 years old, so it's about 112 years old. Uh, and our, our other plant is out there uh, off of Summerheim Drive, and it sits uh, about 40 feet above the uh, lake height, you know, the elevation, mm -hmm. and water is pumped into that into that treatment plant, uh, and that's our primary treatment plant now. It was mm. renamed the Richard S. Wozleski Water Treatment Plant when we added the membrane filtration process to it. Uh, that acts as our primary plant. It has a capacity of up to 48 million gallons of water per day, so we're just about doing about 50% on a, on a daily basis. Some days in the summer, it might be higher. Uh, we might hit up to about 30 to 32 million gallons on a hot summer day. And this has been a pretty hot summer. So we've had a, a number of days where we eclipsed that 25 uh, pretty easily. Without From any there, then, stress um, at all, obviously. I didn't realize yeah, yeah. that. We, we have, yeah, we have more than enough capacity. You know, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's a, you know, we have a wonderful uh, employees that work down there, uh, both management and, the, and our uh, staff that work there to keep that plant, you know, 24 seven and it's putting out it's the water is monitored, you know, constantly before it goes out into the system. Uh, then, you know, then from the water treatment plant, we, we pump it, it'll go to, you know, Sigsby reservoir or the Johnson reservoir. Mm -hmm. Uh, from there, then it's, it's pumped up to higher elevations and just to get a feel for it, um, the, the, we supply about 220,000 people on any given day. Mm. Sometimes during the summer, it's higher, but it's kind of an offset because 
the schools that we have, the universities, you know, they don't have as many students during the summer. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of made up by the tourism uh, industry here in Erie. When tourism, you know, without the tourism industry, you have a lot of students that are on campus living that typically aren't here all the time, that don't aren't residents, but are, are actually living. So they kind of offset each other if you think about it. You know, schools close for the summer, and yeah. here come the tourists. Here come the tourists. So we're, we average about two hundred twenty thousand people per day, hey. and we, um, you know, through a, a a vast network of underground pipes. Uh, to put things in perspective, we have about seven hundred seventy four miles of pipe miles mm. of pipe underground. Mm-hmm. That's enough to go from here to Chicago and back. Almost exactly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Depends on what yeah. part of Chicago you go to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's that's the that's the um, the pipe that's under there. And then of course we have you know pump stations and tanks everywhere that help carry out that you know that mission of supplying people with a safe and reliable water supply. I'd like to see a map of this whole system someday. That would be very very interesting. Uh, how many? Yeah, in- it is quite. We do. You know, we did it down here at the at the waterworks in our office. We do have a map and we superimpose pictures of our facilities on it. Oh. And when the you know public ever comes to a board meeting, when when we have new board members, they're always impressed by that to see what it takes to deliver that kind of water to the vast. You know, I said 774 miles to the vast. Uh, you know, system that we have up here at the service territory. It really is impressive. You're yeah. welcome to come down. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna gonna take like, advantage of that. And I yeah. think now that I hear all these numbers, the water bill oh, doesn't look so bad. <laughs> you think about yeah. all the process coming up and going back down. And you do this with about how many employees? Well, we have a, right now we have 113 employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, people that work in the, like I say, 24-7 in the plants. Mm-hmm. In the water treatment plant, and you know, constant monitoring of the water, and then the rest of the rest of the um, workforce typically works. You know, the daylight hours. In the winter, we'll uh, we'll go maybe around the clock with 24-hour coverage because of just you know the water main breaks and things like that to make sure that people maintain their water service even in the you know the coldest temperatures of the year. Uh, instead of waiting for the morning to go fix leaks that you know undoubtedly always occur in the winter because of the the cold water and the freezing ground and things like that and uh, we will put round the clock shifts on during the week uh, in the winter time so but we have yeah we, we cover it with about 113 uh, employees and um, all dedicated you know they, they work really hard to make sure that people have their water service and uh, really proud of our workforce here I can't even imagine what it must be like in winter it's it's got to be like that whack-a-mole game or something of that nature where one pops up and you seal it up and oop, there goes another one. It's just the nature of the geography and the temperature. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, you know, the, the water cools down and it gives off oxygen. So we actually battle two different types of breaks on a regular basis, especially in the winter. Hmm. As the temperature changes, it gives off, it gives off oxygen and, and you'll get what they call pressure breaks from buildup of air in the lines. Just hmm. like you might have noise on your pipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, at home, when you have air in your lines, mm-hmm. well, when you get air in water mains, there's nowhere for it to go. Oh no! Basically, <laughs> it just no. blows up. Uh, and then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is the um, when the ground freezes and the, the frost line starts going down. That's when we really, really uh, are on the lookout for water main breaks because the ground. Most people don't realize the ground kind of acts as a shock absorber over the pipes. And, if, you know, you know, mm-hmm. anytime there's a water main break, it seems like a road's closed, right? Yes. So the, the water lines are located just off the, off the roadways most of the time. And trucks and potholes occur during the winter. Mm. So you have trucks and cars that are hitting these potholes. And when that ground freezes, 
it 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 acts like the it's almost like those trucks are hammering right on our pipes and mm. a lot of times they just get shifted and the connections are what give so, so you know we have the pressure breaks that are a result of air and sometimes you have the the joint breaks that are a lot of times a result of uh, shifting pipes due to a number of reasons but one of the things people don't realize is the uh, the freezing of the ground and then the the constant you know pounding when potholes mm-hmm. occur, mm-hmm. then the, the constant pounding from vehicle traffic that goes over them. We're talking with Paul Wojtek, CEO, CFO at the Erie Waterworks. It's a work in progress. We turn it on at the faucet, but there is a whole lot more that goes up and then back the other way. So, you know, one of the other things while we're talking about that, yeah, though, yeah. before we, I didn't mean to interrupt you no, there, no, but one of the ahead. other things that a lot of people don't realize what we provide to the public is public fire protection. And there are a number of buildings and larger facilities that are required to have sprinklers in, in there, you know, right inside their, their buildings or facilities. Mm-hmm. But every time you see a hydrant, that's something that, that is provided by the Erie Waterworks for public safety. And it really is uh, a big part of our, our mission to maintain that water, the, the pressure in the system and the water supply. So that there, if there ever is an emergency, uh, you know, when, when a fireman goes on to that uh, hydrant, it's going to provide the water that they expect to come out. And we have a, a really, you know, I would say state-of-the-art GIS system, a, mm-hmm. a geographic information system that we've shared with the city fire department and some of the surrounding fire departments. So they literally can pinpoint a, a fire hydrant on, on the map and know what type of line it's connected to, what type of pressure they expect, what type of flow they expect to come out of that hydrant. And it really has done wonders uh, from a public safety perspective as well. That's that's one that's one little thing, you know, not only do you turn on the spigot and you get the reliable water, but when a fireman or emergency responder turns on the hydrant, they get what they expect out of there as well. Thank you for that service. Didn't really think about that until you brought it up. Yeah, well, most people don't think about that, yeah. Yeah. I enjoy the newsletter and I thoroughly enjoy some of the more technical aspects of your business. One of the critical issues is water quality. If we could touch on that for a minute or two. We're doing really well, aren't we? Oh, extremely well. Uh, th- that new membrane system really puts out, you know, top first class, you know, world class water. Uh, the people that run it are educated on how to use the system. Uh, it, it, a lot of it is is uh, automated, so mm. it, it makes sure that things, you know, there's there's uh, levels that we set to make sure to assure that the water is, you know, kept safe. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion now about lead. And lead pipes, and yes, um, it, it really is. It really is a big issue with the water industry. Uh, Erie Waterworks has been fortunate. Uh, we have a very good corrosion control program, and that was something that was, you know, this all kind of came about with the Flint crisis, the Flint water crisis, mm-hmm. and that kind of came about when they stopped adding an additive that most water utilities use in their in their water uh, treatment, and that's orthopolyphosphate. It's a food-grade phosphate that is added to the water, and it basically creates a microfilm uh, through the water lines to protect the water from leaching any of the contaminants or you know, lead or whatever the pipe materials might be into your water. And we're required to do testing on a regular basis, and quite frankly, you know, we've had very few uh, tests that ever went across the, you know, the, the alert limit. Uh, but because of the things that happened in Flint and more awareness, there's a lot more uh, attention paid to the lead uh, pipe in, in, in water supplies right now. And on that, on that note, you mm-hmm. know, Erie is currently in a 
six and a half million dollar project mm -hmm. to replace the lead that we've been able to identify in our system are these uh, goosenecks that help connect the private water mains to the public water mains uh, if they don't align up that were used back prior to 1946. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're pulling them out. We're targeting about 1,300 uh, goosenecks with a six and a half million dollar grant that we got mm -hmm. uh, through the federal um, programs. And on that same note, we're applying for another $18 million grant later this month. And we're going to be targeting another almost 2,800 uh, lead goosenecks. And if you put those together, you know, you're out to 41. We've identified about 7,500 mm. goosenecks in our system. So that will take care of more than 50%. And this was a program that Erie Waterworks had been doing proactively even before the uh, lead became an issue. So we, we had been doing, you know, a few, maybe, maybe you know, between 50 and 100 per year mm -hmm. uh, with our staff you know, with our regular crews. But when it became uh, money became available through the federal grant program, of course we you know we jumped on it, and uh, now we have a you know third party construction crew out there doing these uh, removal of these goosenecks, and it's really been successful uh, to you know as they say get the lead out right. Yes, and yes. <laughs> um, we're we're happy with the progress, and we're looking forward to expanding it next year and maybe the uh, into 2024 and 2025 even to get them all out, and then we'll you know we'll, we'd have a, a lead free system. Uh, but even even though those lead, that lead was in there with that orthophosphate, we never were able to detect any lead in the water because it was mm -hmm. always insulated. But, you know, just to avoid any, you know, slip ups or whatever, we're going to uh, remove them as best we can. And, uh, you know, we won't have to worry about that in the future. I was trying to imagine the logistics of that. You're digging holes. I mean, this is structural work, right? How far down yeah. does the construction company have to go? What's the logistics involved in that? Yeah, so so because we we live in you know northwestern Pennsylvania, uh, we have a frost line. And everything's buried at least forty eight, you know, at least four feet, forty eight inches. Mm. Uh, typically, we try to put mains uh, about sixty inches below the ground surface. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're going, they're making a pretty good excavation. Uh, you know, we're taking in these programs like this. You take advantage of the economies of scale, and you can have these uh, contractors. They can get more done because they're they're already. Uh, mobilized and they're on site. And typically, these goosenecks were used in in the older, as I said, pre 1946. So in the older homes, and that's typically, you know, they're in the same geographic area, or at least relatively close by. Mm -hmm. And these uh, contractors are able to get, you know, more done than if we were just kind of doing them as as they came up. You know what I mean? Yes. And uh, but it is it is it is a big job, and you know we're happy that we're happy with the progress. We started about earlier this summer. And the biggest, the biggest issue we had though was the uh, was materials and what's going mm -hmm. on with the supply chain industry and supply chain systems right now. Uh, we were fortunate to order copper mm -hmm. far in advance of the project being started. So mm -hmm. by the time they were getting ready to go, the copper arrived, and we were happy about that. So uh, you know, it, it kind of is working out very well for us. If anyone's tried to do any roof work, plumbing or otherwise, I think they've experienced this, even to the point of getting some items for around your home. So you you beat the rush, so to speak, and you're working diligently on the project. The extent, again, of the geography of this, would that be more the urban areas, i.e. the older homes and buildings? Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's it's focused almost primarily in the center, center city of Erie, uh, the northern section. Uh, okay. I think we go up okay. to about, about um, 18th Street. Uh, to the south, we're going to the bayfront to the to the east, and I believe it's uh, it's Liberty or so to the west. 
So it's really concentrated in that uh, little section there. And like I said, we, we've identified about 1,300 in this round. Mm-hmm. We're looking at about another 2,800 uh, in the next round. So we're, we're, we're really attacking this uh, you know, proactively uh, to get these out. And like I say, we don't have a lead problem. Our customers should not be concerned about that. Yes. Every test that we've done over the years, you know, 200, uh, I think it's about 200 per year. And, and I've been here for 22 years, and I think we've only had maybe two or three ever go out of the, you know, the, uh, the limit that would just make, you know, the, um, to give you attention, you know, not violations, just to bring your attention to it. And they've been, you know, we're required to uh, test the absolute worst case scenarios, you know, the third mm-hmm. floor attic sink that hadn't been used in 40 years, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was yeah. one of our exceptions. Yeah. So uh, that's just the way the, the, the rules are for us, that what, what we, how we have to do it. And, um, and so, so it's, it's really been, it's really been successful. We're really happy. People can gain information from your website, which is well done, by the way, but there's some new features involving uh, something um, a little more yeah, critical. Yeah, we're going to be, actually, it, it's been around. We've had that website for about 10, 10 12 years. So we're um, looking to redo it. And we contracted with a, a local company called Re- We Create, mm-hmm. and they're going to be um, uh, revising our website to make it a little easier for our customers to navigate and to get the information out to them. Uh, but one of the things that we're encouraging our customers to do is to go to the customer portal, go to our website, and you can enter your emergency contact information. Mm. And you know, similar to like the 911 systems or whatever, uh, we do, if there's ever an emergency, and, and one of the things we talked about earlier was turning on the spigot and getting the water. Well, we, we really try not to have our customers turn on the water and nothing come out without yes. prior notice. Yeah. You know, at times, there's nothing we can do, right? We, right. There's nothing, if, if there's an emergency and a water main breaks, uh, people might come on and, oh, geez, where's the water? Matter of fact, a lot of times, that's how we find water main breaks is when people call to say they don't have any water. So we know there's something going on. But to send out you know, proactive notices to customers uh, that, yeah, there is a leak in your neighborhood. We may be shutting it down. Uh, you may be in the in the shutdown area, so be advised that for the next you know six hours you may not have water. Fill up some uh, you know some some jugs or whatever or a bathtub to yeah. to you be able to flush your toilets. Um, those are things we're trying to do, but we can't do that unless we have the people's information. So if you'd like, if our customers want to receive that information, if when it's when it's required, you know if they go to our website, you know it's eriewater.org. Mm-hmm. Um, they can they can list their emergency contact information. You know they'll need their account number. Uh, for any of their bills would have their account number on there, and they'll need you know uh, to to put in. You could put in a cell phone number, a landline, whatever whatever is the best way for us to contact you. And our new system, the new website, will allow us to send out text messages, emails, you know, or even automated phone calls. So uh, we'll be able to do all all those all those ways of contacting our customers and keeping people in the know. And I know people like to have information. That's mm-hmm. we're kind of an information driven society right now. And uh, we're trying to get into that, into that swing with your water service as well. It sounds like an excellent project. Is there a deadline on this or is it a work in we're, progress? Yeah, we're, we're hoping to have it by, you know, by the end of the year uh, oh. up and running, you oh. know, it, hmm. it should be a little sooner than that, but you mm-hmm. never know about, you know, going through and getting the bugs out and things like that. So we're hoping that by the, you know, by the first of, uh, the year with it, it'll be fully functional. Uh, our customers can go in there and, like I say, put in their emergency contact information. Also, you know, what we found is that 
probably 85 to 90 percent of the website traffic we have are people paying their bills. So just you know, especially when COVID came mm. around, mm-hmm. it was a really nice feature. We're trying to make it easier, and I, you know, we we did get through it uh, with our current website. It's not that bad, but we're trying to make it a little bit easier for our customers to navigate through that process. Where you know you can put in your account number, you put in your amount, you put in your bank information mm-hmm. or credit card information. We we do we do take credit cards, mm-hmm. and uh, you get, get your bills paid, and you know out of the comfort of your home, twenty four seven. You know you don't have to worry about calling down to the office during business hours in case you're working or something. You could do it anytime uh, at your convenience, and um, uh, we're, we're trying to make that process a little bit smoother and easier for our customers with our new web design. I ran across something about five years ago. It's called, uh, and as you would know, backflow prevention. It turned out we needed this uh, piping device, which I can't describe on the air here, but it, it looks elaborate. What's the technology behind that? What does it help, and how does it help uh, your distribution of water? Yeah, well, it, it basically protects our customers from uh, anything getting, going backwards into the system. Uh, if something is as easy as having a water main break you live on a hill and the water main break is at a lower elevation. And what happens during a water main break, you have a big rush of water that would create a vacuum and, and pull water mm. from wherever it can get it. Mm. And if you, if you don't have those protectors, it could pull things as sim- simple as tidy bowl that you might have in your toilet. Mm. Or if somebody has a hose into their pool, it could, you know, they're filling oh a pool. It, the backflow could pull that right out, that pool water out into the water system, into the water lines. So it's basically uh, a mechanism to prevent exactly what it's called backflow. Mm-hmm. So you don't want things backflowing into the water system. You know, our, our system is designed to push pressure out. When that pressure drops, and that happens in a case of a water main break or a fire where, you know, you'd have a big draw on a, on a, um, a water main from a fire hydrant being open, it, could, it starts pulling water from the easiest places where it could get it. And sometimes... Without those backflow preventers, that's you know personal waters in 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 people's homes and things that we're we really don't want in our water system. You know, oh, it could so, be a huge chemical or more important, a, a, a life safety, a health issue. Yeah, and, and and quite frankly, you're exactly right. The the majority of our backflow prevention program is with industry and commercial, mm-hmm. and so you know I was describing something very very you know well known to our to our customers and the people your listeners. But when you have industrial processes that have water involved in their process, without the really top-of-the-line backflow preventers, that could, that could contaminate water, a water supply very easily. So we are focused primarily on commercial and industry where they may have any – and it doesn't necessarily go by how much water you use, but, but rather what you use it for. So every industry and every commercial business is looked at from their you know, risk capacity – of whether what type of backflow preventer they would have to install based on their usage of that water and what that water is connected to, you know, downstream within their facilities. And that really is uh, done to protect our customers from other customers. You know, it's nothing that we're putting in the water. We're trying to keep the bad stuff out of that water Mm -hmm. supply once it's uh, delivered to the people's homes and businesses. 
I didn't think about this until 10 years ago. It almost stunned me. I thought it was positive pressure all the time, but utilizing the laws of physics, that's not possible. Yeah, that's exactly what we look at when you have negative pressure. That's that's yeah. exactly the word they use. So yeah. When you said positive pressure, yeah. that's the good thing. Negative yeah. pressure is bad. <laughs> Either way. As I drive around the community, new school, new manufacturing facilities, how does that stress the system? And do you help folks with their construction projects? Well, as, as I said earlier, and we pointed out, we're, we're probably at about 50% capacity on any day. Mm-hmm. So we welcome any development, you know, whether it's schools or businesses, uh, we're there to, to provide the water service. And for the most part, unless it's a, uh, something that way out of the way out of the range, you know, there would be no, no, no you know, restrictions on what could be built. We do provide assistance from a water availability perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, if you have a big major industry, you couldn't tap into a six-inch water main. You know, you'd be looking for a 12-inch water main. Mm. So there are those types of things. And then also the flow and the pressure that's there. Uh, like I say, a big industry might be looking, or even a school, they would need that sprinkler uh, system that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. That's called a private fire uh, suppression system. Mm. And they have to have enough pressure to run that. So, they, so we offer that type of um, assistance from a water flow perspective, from a water pressure perspective, uh, the size of the line and, and what's available uh, when they do their flow tests for their for their you know regular water use domestic water use, but also their flow test if they need a fire you know prevention system a sprinkler system, they need to have adequate water flow and adequate water pressure to run those things. So we do assist businesses and you know potential businesses uh, with that type of work to make sure that their water needs can be met. What other services do you do in the community? What type of community outreach topics or projects are you involved well, in? Well, you know, we, we, we do have, we do set aside some money. I know there's a few um, community gardens that are out there, mm-hmm. you know, to give a plug to the Sisters of St. Joseph. I think they have yes. a couple of um, community gardens. We do have a number of uh, community gardens for the Vietnam War Memorial, the Korean War Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have sprinkler systems, um, a couple different places. Welcome to the Bayfront has a yard hydrant. And we, we try to work if there is a community type program uh, that we can participate in, we would do that. And you know, we in the past, we've had a bottled water program, but I think mm-hmm. just from an environmental perspective, we may be kind of, you know, getting away from that a little bit. Uh, we may be looking at something else that we can do in, in regards to that of providing some water for events uh, that we currently provide bottled water for. You know, and, and when we started that program, it was looked on as trying to get our name out there and everything, but uh, that was, you know, probably 15 years ago. But since that time, you know, more awareness has come about the environmental impact of uh, water bottles. So we're looking at possibly looking at a different way of, in, you know, interacting with community functions, uh, not necessarily with um, supplying bottled water, but maybe from a different angle. And we're still working on that. But yeah. uh, we, we try to stay active as possible in the community. I know we do... Uh, uh, we do coming up uh, on on Erie Days. We'll be giving tours, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of our plant. That's something we do. But um, you know, we, we're 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 trying to we try to be as good of a, as a uh, uh, community uh, participant as possible. Are you planning a few more during the year, or next year is going to be a, an annual type event that is a tour, or it, are there it, other it, ways to go always, through? It's always done in conjunction with Erie Days. Yeah, we do it. Yeah, you know, it's really. Yeah. 
you know, because of 9-11 and now water utilities, and a lot of people don't realize this, but we fall under the jurisdiction of the uh, Homeland, Department of Homeland Security. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there was a, after 9-11, there was a vulnerability assessment that was done with all water utilities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you notice we have a lot more fences up now than we used to and things like that. Oh, yeah. But mm. one of the things that it also impacted was our ability to bring the public through our facilities. Uh, they're really kind of off off limits at this point. Uh, we do make exceptions, like I say, for Erie Day, and I think we do some tours with the Erie ambassadors uh, when they have their their classes. We do tours of the Wazaleski plant, mm-hmm. you know, their primary plant. Uh, but since COVID, I think those have been kind of put yes. on the back burner. Yeah. Whether they restart those or not, I'm not sure. You know, when that might happen. But yeah, 9/11 kind of had an impact, and because as we talked about the importance of you know, water to, to quality of life, the water for public safety and the, and the hydrants and things like that, they really put an emphasis on protecting water systems. And unfortunately, that led to, you know, kind of a just, you know, just just a periodic uh, opening of the doors to the for the public to see it. And we used to we're very proud of our facilities. Unfortunately, most people can't get in to see them. <laughs> oh, totally understand that. Well, from fire safety to the most critical thing that is fresh water to your home and where it all goes afterward, I think you folks are doing an excellent job. You've gotten some good ratings across the country. Your measurements are all very, very good. You do this with what about two hundred sixty million in improvements in a budget of oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah uh, 36 million and all with just about 113 employees accolades to all the the good work you provide for our community we really appreciate your visit paul and thank you very much for this update sure thing it was it was great talking with you and uh, if you ever have any questions or you have want me on if something comes up i'll be more than happy to speak with you again thank you very much and thank you for being here